Worcester Culture Watch, a podcast connecting you with the local culture scene in Worcester, arts, entertainment, music, and more. Worcester Culture Watch from the Worcester Telegram and Gazette. Hello and welcome to Worcester Culture Watch. This is Victor Infante, Entertainment Editor for the Worcester Telegram and Gazette. And today we're here to talk about one of the most pinnacle figures in American pop and global pop culture right now. Um, who passed away this past week, Stan Lee, creator of such characters as Spider-Man, the Black Panther, X-Men, Iron Man, and the Fantastic Four, and on and on and on. The list of accomplishments could keep us here all day. <laughs> so, uh, instead of rambling on myself, I've invited into the studio the manager of That's Entertainment on Park Avenue in Worcester, Mr. Ken Carson. Hi, Ken. Hey, Victor. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for joining us. So, let's start with the immediate reaction. Um, how, how, what was your reaction when you heard Stan Lee died? Well, uh, I think... Uh, the first reaction was the same as uh, most people, uh, just the enormity of it. Uh, mm. He was such a giant. Uh, the owner of the store, uh, Paul Howley, called me and said, did you hear? And I had just heard a few minutes before that. And uh, I said, yes, I heard. And he said, that's a big one. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's so much to say, but as a summation, that's pretty good. Because uh, you just realize, as you said, how much he's involved with, how much uh, of pop culture flowed from his mind. And he was 95 years old. Anyone who was interested in comics, um, probably just about anyone in the world who was interested in comics, Stanley was there before them. So he was that constant uh, in pop culture with all his uh, creations, but also his cameos in the movies. <laughs> He was just always there, and it was, uh, even though he was 95, it shouldn't be a shock to anyone that somebody 95 passes away, but there were still shock waves felt because everyone knew that it was the end of an era. Uh, and what was the reaction around the store? Have people been coming in? Have been people yeah. been seeking out his work? It, yes, absolutely. And uh, we see it on Facebook. Uh, we saw it on Facebook right away uh, when we, we posted the news. Um, <clears throat> yeah, people, people are, people want to talk about it. People want to tell their stories. <clears throat> Excuse me. People want to tell what, uh, Stanley meant to them personally. And that's been really interesting to hear because, uh, the stories, uh, of, um, Stanley's work coming at the right time in their lives when they felt like they were misfits or misunderstood. And suddenly they started reading, uh, Marvel comics, especially, and and it was a turning point for them. They felt like it was okay. They were all right. It was okay to be different. Uh, they found a place where they felt like they belonged. And let's, I want to hone in on this a little bit, because what was it about the characters that Stan Lee created that hit so home for so many people? Well, uh, Stan Lee's big innovation in comics was to make characters that were uh, more complicated uh, than those characters that had existed in the 1940s, especially. Uh, the 40s being a time of crisis. Um, what, what the public wanted were, were big, uh, larger-than-life, uh, infallible heroes uh, to um, save them from everything that was going on. Uh, by the 1960s, uh, you know, an era of an awakening, 
uh, Stan Lee uh, brought people what they wanted then. They wanted to see that the heroes uh, did great things, but they were just regular people. And they had uh, insecurities just like they did. Uh, they might be superheroes. They might be very capable in some situations. Um, but they could still have girl trouble, for example. <laughs> Or, or trouble paying their bills uh, would come up with Stan Lee's kinds of heroes. Yeah, so, especially Spider-Man. Both those, uh, <laughs> both those examples exactly, for Spider-Man. Exactly. Though, though the Fantastic Four sometimes uh, would run out of money. Uh, and, and, of course, even within the group Fantastic Four, uh, the Thing and the Torch were always fighting, though they, they loved each other. Um, so the, the heroes uh, could be related to in a way that um, superheroes couldn't be related to previously. So people made a personal connection. Uh, you know, for that reason, they could see a little bit of themselves in the heroes. Excellent. So what um, now, of course, we've gone already went through the laundry list of here. Um, could you talk us a little bit about um, how, maybe a little bit about the Marvel method and how Stan Lee's creations differ, how he differed in that creation? Yes, as I understood it uh, from from reading about it long ago, uh, Stan would give um, an artist a general idea of of what he wanted in a story conference. So I, I, you know, I don't really have an idea of how that went, and there's probably a lot of dispute about it. Um, but I think uh, what I understand of it is that Stan would come up with a notion that the say two characters were going to have a battle, and. Um, they give the location of it, maybe some of the details. Um, and then the artist would have a lot of freedom in drawing out that story. So the Marvel method depended a lot on very creative artists. And a lot of the disputes about who created what center around this Marvel method. So, for example, uh, I think one great example of it is in Fantastic Four 48 through 50, uh, Stan Lee came up with a story of a, a giant, all-powerful kind of being called Galactus, who actually ate planets to sustain himself. And he and Jack Kirby talked about the story, and Jack Kirby then laid it out. When Stan saw what Kirby had done, he noticed a character flying around in outer space on a surfboard, and he said to Jack, well, who is this character? And Kirby said, well, I figured someone as powerful as Galactus would need a herald, someone to help him find planets to devour. So he created this character called the Silver Surfer. So in a sense, Kirby uh, comes up with the Silver Surfer by himself, but Stan Lee then goes, goes into the story and adds the dialogue and the captions and gives the character a, a nobility and a backstory and together, it's that synergy that created these wonderful characters. Uh, Kirby providing a lot of action and, and um, larger-than-life concepts, and Stan Lee kind of bringing them back down to earth and giving, giving the personality uh, to the character. Uh, adding maybe, sometimes, a lot of times with Stan Lee, I'd say, uh, he was add, adding a layer of soap opera uh, to these terrific action stories that uh, Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko were visualizing. Yeah, and we're talking, you know, we're talking about Jack Kirby, of course, who one of the great all-time great comics artists created yes. almost 
the the other half of Stanley. Steve Ditko, of course, helped create Spider Man, and there was a lot of back and forth on to how that, and, and how Dr. much credit Strange. and yeah. Doctor Strange. Um, these and these are characters now that are extremely familiar, ubiquitous, even because mostly mm. because of the movies now, more even more than the comics. Yes, I think everyone in the world. I was thinking when Stanley died. I think everyone in the world probably knows his characters at this point, and that's quite an accomplishment. Maybe you could find somebody somewhere who hadn't heard of any of the Stanley characters. But I'm not sure about that. It would be very difficult to find somebody at least Spider-Man, <laughs> right? Right, Spider-Man or the Hulk. Yeah. It seems like everyone would know at least something of his work, and and that really is amazing. Yeah. Now, where did you discover Marvel comics or comic books in general? Well, I know I did read comics as a kid. I read Sad Sack, which was an army kind of story, like Beetle Bailey almost, and. Uh, my mother used to always say to me, don't you want to read something else? Because like Beetle Bailey, uh, the sergeant was kind of a rough character. But I didn't get into superhero comics uh, greatly until I was about uh, 14 years old, visiting a relative in the hospital. And in the gift shop, they had a spinner rack of comic books. And I had seen comics a lot before, but for some reason I was just the right age, I think. And and they spoke to me in a way they never had before. And I just grabbed a bunch of them off the rack and, of course, bought them and brought them home and just devoured them and, and really never looked back uh, from that. That, that was, um, say, 1974. And I've been involved in one way or another on many levels with comics since then. And you've been at That's Entertainment since the beginning, pretty much, haven't you? Or? Well, I was a customer at That's Entertainment, yes, right at the beginning in 1980. And um, at some point, started working for Paul part-time, maybe around the late 80s, and full-time around the early 90s, and with some uh, slight interruptions. I've always been at least part-time there. Uh, I've been there for, for maybe, well, what is, what is that? I don't even know now. It could, <laughs> be, could be going on 30 years, really, yeah. in, in one way or another. So, yeah, I have a, a long, long association with the company, right to its 1980 founding. Wow. So anyway, yeah. So what happens? What's happening now in pop culture and with Marvel everywhere and on Netflix and on different having shows on different cable companies in these still vaguely connected universe? That's always been really interesting to me because really that was one of the things that Marvel did different than the other characters. There were shared... DC had a shared universe, but maybe not quite so explicitly. No. DC, as I've heard it, uh, the editors of the different DC families of titles, like the Superman family titles or the Batman family titles, were very territorial, and they didn't <laughs> want to lend their characters out to be used by the other editors. So that was a big difference. And, and also, the DC characters were all in separate cities, whether it were Gotham or Metropolis, or I think The Flash was Central City. Keystone City in the 40s. Was it? Okay. Yeah. And I'm trying to think of where... That was my nerd moment. Where Green, right? Lan <laughs> where Green Lantern lives, I can't think of Coast it. Coast City in the Silver is it? Age. Okay. In Gotham in the original, as I recall. Yeah, and, and also, uh, even the names of the cities, of course, they're not real places, but Stanley, uh, pretty early on, if not from the beginning, set everything in New York City. And uh, as a kid, I would really think that 
if you went to New York City, you would see these same kinds of scenes that were being depicted because they would put buildings in there that were very recognizable. Uh, and, um, you know, the setting, the realistic setting, I think, made a big difference. But also, as you say, the characters moved freely from title to title, and it really gave you a sense of this uh, big story playing out uh, all across New York City, all across all the titles. Now, it's funny because I was looking at something, a story online today, and they had, you know, Stanley's 10 most influential comics or whatever. You know, there's been a thousand of stories like that now. That would be and, interesting. Yeah, and they had a cover, they had the covers of them. And of course, Amazing, Sp- uh, Amazing Fantasy number 15 with Spider Man's first appearance. But later they had Amazing Spider Man number one. And the interesting thing about that was that it had Spider Man on it. But it also had the Fantastic Four on the co- right there on the cover, right? And that must have been shocking because I remember like reading how, or even reading the comics, you know, the um, reprints of the comics in the '40s when the Justice Society, um, that was a big innovation in shared universes and from DC Comics in the '40s. But they wouldn't, whenever a character was there in their own book they would take them out of the Justice Society and put a fill-in member in. Interesting. Yeah. So that, that, that must have been a big well, certainly to put, shock. Right. To put Fantastic Four on the cover of Spider-Man number one was almost certainly a marketing ploy uh, more than anything else. But Stan Lee was great at that, and he knew he had something with the Fantastic Four. He had a following, a readership. He wanted to make sure they picked up Spider-Man number one also. Well, and that's the thing, and he was—he had this sort of strange brilliance about him, and I, I do attribute the, the, this a lot to him, where he tied comic books to the pop art movement late in the six, you know, the late sixties. Mm-hmm. So suddenly, Spider-Man and the X-Men were pop art <laughs> offerings. Right, I forget Mar- the exact phrase. I there. think Marvel Pop Art Productions uh, was written in the corner box for a little while. And that, that's tying it to com- counterculture, which has had to have raised a few eyebrows. Right. Yeah, I don't, for whatever reason, Stan Lee was, was an older person. Maybe he was in his 40s as the 60s started, but he really connected with that youth movement. I, I suppose he saw that that's where his market was. But uh, for all I know, too, he was uh, into, into higher consciousness also. But it really worked. Uh, many of those characters, especially Doctor Strange, you, you'd have to say, uh, dealt with um, very far-out concepts. Uh, Fantastic Four also. Um, and Avengers, too. They started to deal with uh, things like time travel and um, different dimensions and races of beings who had uh, motivations that were very hard for humans to understand. So... It it really was kind of a trip, the Marvel comics. I guess that's maybe what he was aiming for for quite a while. They were kind of wild, out on the edge. Mm. So people that have been coming into the store in, since Stan died, um, are they looking for something particular? Or is there something intra- something that's bubbling up? Well, most of the people who come into the store are, are, are uh, long-term regular customers, so they do have a lot of comics already. Mm. But people do look at the uh, display comics, uh, the higher-priced comics, uh, differently in the last few days. Uh, we've had a lot of people looking at a um, Fantastic Four number 48 we have in the case because that's the first appearance of Silver Surfer in Galactus. And, and that Galactus trilogy is considered 
I think by most people, one of the greatest comic stories ever told. Indeed. Probably the best uh, Stan Lee-Jack Kirby collaboration uh, that ever happened. So people are in that assessment kind of mode. As you mentioned, you saw that article. People are in that mode of really looking back at at what he did and trying to figure out what the best of what he did was. Yeah. And of course what, you know, a lot of that, what is considered the best or the most lasting right now is being reflected by the omnipresence of Marvel studios and Marvel comics and film and media, film and television right now. Yeah. That's interesting too, because, uh, all the, uh, news notices on Stanley mention uh, Black Panther very prominently because that's kind of the last thing uh, a lot of people saw, mm. and it was such a international blockbuster success. But mostly in the comics, and especially in the comics that Stanley wrote, Black Panther was not a major character, um, which is interesting. He he gave the character a lot of the qualities that you see on the screen. But it wasn't until many years later that the the time was right for a movie and uh, that Black Panther really has captured uh, the public imagination at this point. But in terms of his work uh, and what what Stanley himself uh, wrote in the old days, Black Panther was was very much a side issue. Mm. And I, 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 I'm not sure the provenance and the history of some of that, so I'm not going to get into it. I know I, I heard there was some pushback and from Marvel. Like he had an exposed mouth and fa- mouth, and they wanted to cover it up entirely. <laughs> they were very worried about it for um, some reason. It was very strange. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think yeah. he has his uh, costume has gone through some some variations over the years, and I do remember at one time he had a, a mask more like Captain America's where you could see the lower half of his face. I don't know. The idea of that might have been just to show that he was African-American because his, yeah, his, I, uh, it might be his first costume might have been completely covering him. I'm not sure about that. I'd have to look back. My mind, my memory isn't all it used to be. Wow, there's such so much <laughs> detail and minutia to remember when it comes to comic books. And I don't think, well, I do know there are some people who remember everything and they will tell you about it online. Right, absolutely. <laughs> but, they're, um, they're out there. But yeah, so, but yeah, no, I think there's still some of the, it's, it's just funny because even some of his minor characters, um, oh goodness gracious, the um, editor at the Daily Planet, not, not J. Jonah Jameson, who was the publisher. Robbie Robertson. Robbie Robertson. Um, I was reading something in the Los Angeles Times. There was about talking about him as, as a African-American professional char- man as a character. And how understated that was, and nobody was really drawing attention to it. Yes, I would say that that was a very, very understated uh, breakthrough kind of character. And for for me, I think he is actually one of the best portrayals of a journalist <laughs> in comics. Because let's face it, most journalists <laughs> in comic books are actually really terrible at well, their job. Well, J- uh, yeah, J. J. Jonah Jameson was so over the top and crazy, and uh, Robbie Robertson was the guy who was really running things. Uh, he was. Um, very calm, uh, the calm center of the Daily Bugle. All right. I know I want to start winding this down a little bit, but really quick before we get to the end of this, what uh, which out of Stan's favorites mean the most to you? Who are your favorites? Of the characters? Sure. I always enjoyed Hawkeye. I oh. always thought that that was interesting that a guy whose only real skill was archery could stand uh, alongside Iron Man or Thor, <clears throat> any of these super powerful characters, and still have something to contribute. 
I think that was probably a writing challenge at times when they were fighting some uh, incredibly powerful villain to say, well, Hawkeye has to contribute something here. What can Hawkeye do? Uh, what what uh, key moment can he have? Uh, but but they, they'd always manage to do it. Hawkeye would have something to do. And uh, I think that impressed me. But also, him being a um, normal human, it was easier to relate to him. And he became like the... Uh, the entry point to a story, in a way. Ah, wow, that's an interesting choice. That didn't even occur to me, because most people are f- focusing on S- Spider-Man and the X-Men. Mm. Those are the, probably the two big ones right now that yeah, everybody's that, talking sure. about. Well, they're not bad either, but, <laughs> but I, liked, I liked Hawkeye, and I liked Iron Man almost for the same reason, that you could picture that if you had a suit like that, you could, you could do things. Um, it was more of a leap to say that if you were a Norse god or if you were a super soldier... But with with Iron Man, uh, he was a regular person outside the suit. Well, super genius, but uh, a physical human outside of the suit. But with the suit, that that gave him all the power that he needed. So that that also, uh, I think, made made him easier to relate to. Well, that's funny because I I I'm thinking about Stan Lee, who really one of his his great legacy is bringing humanity to comics. Right. These really human characters. That's the really the really human characters that resonated with you. Yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought of it that way. And also, if I, if I could just go back to it for a of second. Course. Along that line, you talked about how are people uh, reacting um, to Stan Lee's death. And, and a lot of the people who posted on Facebook or have come into the store have said things like, this man changed my life, uh, which for a, a guy who writes uh, comic books is, is quite an achievement. But when you talk to these people or, or see what, they, what they've written... Uh, in more depth, what they're talking about is that at some point in their lives they felt uh, alienated or misunderstood or that they just didn't fit in. And somehow Stanley's stories gave them uh, the the boost that they needed at that point in their lives. And I, I guess it has to do with um, the way he wrote his characters uh, as as flawed people who... Uh, somehow still found the strength to uh, do their best, to struggle on. Uh, Somehow that touched people's hearts in a way that you wouldn't expect comics to. So I think in the end, uh, Stan Lee's legacy is that he told people uh, that they were okay and that that they, they were better than people knew. Maybe they had secret identities that people didn't know about and that there was something in them that was going to do great things. And it's, that's been like the recurring theme in, in people's reactions, and it's, it's very interesting to see it over and over again. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you want to talk about while we're here? Uh, no, I think we, we covered, covered uh, things pretty well. Well, really quick, um, maybe to change the subject just a little bit, um, what's coming up at That's Entertainment in the near future? Well, I should have brought a flyer for it, so I have all the details, but uh, uh, Serana, our marketing manager, has uh, an event scheduled for uh, Saturday the 17th called Microcon, and it's going to be a comic convention on a, on a small scale out in the store, and she has some artists coming in and some game developers and some craftspeople. Uh, I think there's an author also, and... She's trying to uh, replicate the uh, experience of a convention, but, uh, of course, without any admission charge, for one thing. 
but also just on a small scale where people can come in and enjoy it uh, with, without a lot of the hassle that might be associated with a, with a giant convention. All right. Well, that sounds like fun. Anyways, thank you very much, Ken, for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. This has been another edition of Worcester Culture Watch. We'll be back in the near future. As always, our music was composed by DJ Manipulator and Excelsior. Excelsior.